people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. My name is Alex, and today we're going by um, a familiar voice, um, Sam, or whoever he's going by, whatever name he is going by now. We didn't actually specify an interview. Is uh, back. Um, we're going to be talking about Andrew Tate and the crisis of of masculinity in young men, which is a hot topic at the moment. Um, one thing before we begin, if you want to support the show and support the interviews, then please do subscribe to the Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. Okay, on with the show. Okay, hello everybody. Guess who's back? It's me. The return of the king, as I named that's, this. That's very good of you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be back. Uh, I don't think I'm actually going to do any more episodes after this, but... Um... You could come back on for occasional guest spots. Yeah, will you, will you let me? What, what kind of areas will you have me on? Because every time that... You want to talk about like a really, really miserable man? <laughs> you have me on. Well, I feel like you, um, you've got some certain like I've got a certain insight, good analysis on miserable men. A certain first person yeah. insight on what it's like to be a miserable man. A yeah, a little bit of an absolutely. experience. Yeah, yeah. Andrew Tate. So today we're going to be talking about Andrew Tate. Yeah, you, you're taking over the hosting. hosting Sorry, uh, it's just it's in my. You're trying to lead plans. the conversation all over again. Yeah. It's an Sorry. Yeah, I see what you're doing. That's fine. You 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 do you're doing a great job. Um, we're not necessarily going to do a general introduction because, you know, we've had that for like two years or however long he's been in the in the discourse and people can find that elsewhere. And I assume that anyone listening to this will be familiar with Andrew Tate. But uh, I think it's he's an interesting example of of kind of wide issues that we did, we've already discussed in the book, specifically this idea of the, the influence from the swarm, which is one of the chapters of Person to Net Far Right. And of of course, the kind of, Mux talks about crisis of masculinity in which Tate is a kind of a leading figure um, in kind of combating or providing an answer to, however horrible that answer is. So I suppose, just for you, like, why, how kind of like um, unique is Tate? Does he fit in with these previous people we've talked about or is he kind of a development of what they were doing? So I don't think he's clearly in the, the the frame of the far-right influencer, as we laid him out in the, the book we wrote, uh, Post-Internet Far-Right, for the main reason being that he doesn't espouse a particularly clear racial politics, right? And the way we were kind of defining far-rightness is something to do with, like, uh, a racial politics. He doesn't do that. What he does talk about is a kind of naturalised dominance and superiority to men and a particular group of men. So he's not... And, and the lines of that naturalised superiority... The lines of that dominance are not around race. Andrew Tate himself is, has a, a, a black father. Uh, he's not like a white supremacist in that sense. Um, but he's he's attached to power and the kind of the organisation of power as it currently is. And that means the attachment to particular people who are in power as they currently are. And so in that very roundabout way, I think it's possible to lump him in with like the far right. He's attached to the aesthetics of and the experience of a kind of untrammeled masculine power. Um, that's not particularly unusual, I don't think, actually, in society in general. Um, so it's not like a, totally unusual. It's not like he's some sort of huge outlier from the perspective of that kind of uh, belief. But I think that what makes him different is that he's much more similar to Jordan Peterson in his politics. Um, He's a 
sort of traditionalist figure, a kind of conservative figure, um, whose aesthetics are nevertheless aesthetics of the contemporary, right? He's trying to find cracks, not in capitalism as it was uh, 50 years ago, but he's trying to like find the kind of particular contradictions and tensions and experiences and, um, uh, yeah, experiences that are possible right now in 2023 and that's why he seems i think such a well 2022 because he's been in jail for the whole of this year but he seems like a very contemporary figure because of that his notion of wealth is not the classically kind of fascist one um it's not about belonging to a, to a race uh, necessarily it's about belonging to a kind of an elite uh, and that elite can be constituted in lots of different ways that is actually now that we kind of say it like that not dissimilar from the kinds of elite theories that uh, are the kind of progenitors of fascism um, which were less tied to, to race, in, particularly in Italy, but the uh, but but it is a it, it kind of a yeah has, has a kind of a, a vague connection to to fascist thought or far right thought. I don't know how, how do you position him. I think he's more of a sorry one more thought. I think there's a kind of a, there's a there's a kind of a loop we'll get into here, uh, and I think it, it shows itself in certain kinds of um, failure modes that you might think of his his followers as adopting, which is that there's a kind of a grinding between neoliberal subjectivity of self-improvement, of business acumen, of entrepreneurship, of like self-domination, and a far-right subjectivity or a far-right way of being in the world, which is that group belonging, dominating other people, and traditional ideas, right? And so we get both these two things operating at the same time. We get like the market and the will of the market, and we get like the elite and the will of the elite, and these two things are kind of like shifting up against each other in Andrew Tate as a, as a figure. So he's kind of on the he's on the cusp of the far right, where it borders into like neoliberal grind culture. Danny, what, what do you, what do you think? Well, yeah, he has had like a, a past relationship with Tommy Robinson, who is a far right figure, um, but he 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 kind of does avoid politics beyond the kind of very base men over women kind of a, a very base traditionalist. Uh, view a spousal of view i think what you said is interesting about the the combination of grind set and this kind of elite politics because really what you see in these various kind of online course ventures is that to get to gain access to the elite to become a member of hustling university or whatever the thing is next you basically pay him money and so it's a, a really interesting combination is that the reason the way to get to the elite is basically by giving him cash um it's not really how kind of traditional uh, kind of fast elite is constitutes itself. It's much more about self improvement and recreation of yourself through your own work and things like this, and through kind of brotherhood and solidarity with people of your race. Um, and I, I think that's because he's just much more uh, like a kind of grifter figure than than a political figure. And and it, it's just he's he's expressing a certain expressing the grift in a certain mode, which is deep misogyny. Um, but it's also the way in which you know, what you're talking about, the failures of his of followers, women become like another object alongside the Bugatti and the big house and the millions, the, hundred, the passive income, you know, to, 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 pick a, to pick a term from the internet, rather than, um, you know, some kind of like elite that's forged through combat or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, like it is combat as well. So I think there are, there are I think what's kind of interesting about Tate is that I, I was having the same kind of thoughts earlier, right? There's a kind of a, a tension between like the forging your masculinity through combat and having a masculinity because you just own lots of stuff. And like, in some ways, these are the two sides of the of the, of the kind of neoliberal far-right kind of like tension that 
in, that Andrew Tate embodies. On the one hand, the kind of the neoliberal ideal is maybe even someone like Nadim Sahawi, right? Uh, who's not white, uh, but just like has hundreds of millions of pounds of property, right? <laughs> like that's the masculine ideal. It's like to own loads of stuff, right? Um, and, and and then there's kind of a, there's the masculine ideal, which is not the far right ideal, right? Which is the, the, the being kind of having a masculinity kind of forged through combat. And yeah, there's a kind of tension there as well, I think. And at the same time, I was wondering about this this idea that women just become this kind of property. And I think that's possibly true. There is there is a sense in which lots of contemporary misogyny is not the misogyny of hatred, but the misogyny of, of just like indifference to women, like just finding women like utterly uninteresting. And that is a kind of misogyny, like not even treating them as kind of worthy uh, people, right? That's that's a, obviously a mode of misogyny. But I think maybe there is both things here. Like there are both actually quite intense hatreds towards women and a kind of studied indifference and a kind of treating them as just like a mere Bugatti, uh, a mere kind of like, you know, a bauble for one's lifestyle. And indeed a mere poor, a kind of a, a, mere, a mere like peace in an ongoing game of status combat with other men, right? So like the world that, that Andrew Tate embodies is a world that doesn't really contain any women or only contains women as um, they can be manipulated and used to further a kind of homosocial game of um, status combat between him and the other men around him. And that's how it kind of seems to me. Like the, the, In the background, on webcams, yeah. uh, hanging off someone's arm, right. but silent the whole time. Silent, and indeed, I mean, this is one of the kind of strange things that we talked about when we were talking to Annie Kelly about um, incel culture as well, is that when you actually read the accounts that these men have, when they, are, when they finally do have sex with women, they're like strangely not that interested in the actual sex that they have they have with the women. It's just about like an acquisitive mode. It's just about like kind of a, an acquiring of more and more things. And but I think, as I just mentioned, I think one can go too far and say that oh, actually, what these men are interested in is just like combat with other men, and women are just kind of like a, a you know a mere tool to that effect. I think there is actually thinking about particularly this this like meme, the make me a sandwich meme. So. If, anyone's read any kind of commentary on this uh, over the last two or three weeks. There are lots of instances of, of schoolboys using this phrase and um, as a kind of an insult to their, their female teachers who they're ignoring, right? Just like on the homework, instead of making the homework, they'll just simply write the word, make me a sandwich as a kind of a, you know, a gesture. And I think that that does, that does like suggest uh, that, at least in some cases, this is, this is like an, an active visceral uh, misogyny as well as the kind of the, the more like, uh, acquisitive, um, indifferent misogyny. These two things are both based on the same thing. So, but they're not the same thing. But they're, they're like they're intertwined. Despite uh, Tate um, not being a, like a conventional far right figure, and I do agree about that, his kind of his relationship with his audience is very much still of the influence that's warm dynamic, and you can especially see this. In fact, it's almost a continuation of this in the way that after he was deplatformed, uh, he grew his his name grew his popularity grew just because of these people clipping his podcast and posting it on tiktok and on twitter and instagram and then hyping each other up and using various hashtags and so unlike what we said in the book about how when the influencer says something too extreme and then disappears he kind of loses purchase over his swarm there are now kind of roots to which the swarm can still engage with the influencer and i wondered what do you make of this kind of kind of ghost-like presence on the internet he's not here and yet he's everywhere at the same time you know racking up billions and billions of, of views of course now he's not here at all because he's 
writing tweets from prison, yeah. but uh, still. Right, right, writing before. some very bombastic tweets as well about writing about how he's going to be either murdered or emerge as like the world's most respected man. I think we should come back to talk about like the notion of the high value man and that kind of thing, which is interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a sense in which he's this kind of absent guru, right? And I think that what's interesting about, I mean, as you said, he is that he is still operating on the kind of influencer swarm dynamic. That's not unusual. That shouldn't be a surprise. Because the reason why we use that phrase, the far-right influencer, in, in, in the book is because it's actually a wider dynamic, right? And so it shouldn't be a surprise that, that Andrew Tate is, is reoccupying that position, even though he's not like very obviously on the far right. Um, I think that there's a... Uh, I mean, this is, again, one of these kind of like, ex- extremely peculiar neoliberal far-right amalgams. The reason why people were posting his videos is because that was one of the ways in which you could gain credit inside Hustlers University to was to post his videos on your channels, right? So it's like it's a it's an it's called an affiliate marketing scheme. An affiliate marketing scheme is when um, you pay people, sorry, um, people can gain credit inside the system that you've produced by getting other people to join the system as well. So you pay people to get people to pay to join. So it's like a kind of a, it kind of spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. And that's how you get a situation when, you know, 13 billion or whatever it is of his videos have been, have, have accumulated that many that many views on the internet. That's a lot of views. Um, even by the, you know, kind of the, the slightly inflated absurd numbers that you get on the internet these days, kind of, you know, 10 trillion tweets or something, right? That's a lot of views. Um, he was briefly, we should just say this, um, in July, I think it was last year, he was briefly the most searched man on the internet. Like more so than Donald Trump, he was more searched than any other influencer. He was more searched at that point than COVID nineteen was. Um, you know, this this is a really astonishing degree of 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 of, of name recognition. One of the things that Tony Robertson also has, with whom he has a kind of in some ways like a clear connection, both from Luton. It's a bit weird, but um, what are they doing in that town? <laughs> Well, they both had like they're kind of friends as right. well. They kind of yeah. hang out together. Like yeah, you know, there, there's this. There are all these kind of connections between them. Like Tony Robertson, at one point, I know had the highest name recognition of anyone apart from the Prime Minister of the day. I think it was probably David Cameron. He was like the second most well-known person in the UK, which is absolutely astonishing. And I think we, of course, that didn't translate in Tony Robertson's case to mass support for his politics. And so we should be, you know, kind of clear that this is actually really quite, quite like a marginal movement, even though people are like aware of it um, and agitate. Um, but what's what's kind of insidious about it is that it doesn't, because it doesn't have the kind of a clear far-right signals, he's not there like uh, waving a swastika around, right? He's not like, you know, the kind of the, the classic kind of uh, signals of the far-right. Because of that, I think is, is, is much more um, liable to just uh, articulate something that already exists in, in a much more intense way. And that, that thing is... Is this kind of visceral misogyny? Um, of course, we need to probably need to talk about we probably need to talk about like what's actually happened recently, and he's ended up getting you know getting arrested by Romanian authorities, ending up jail, having previously said that you know the reason he was in Romania was that it was easier to, I suppose, exploit and uh, traffic yeah. women. Um, is essentially what he said. Um, this kind of you know kind of repeated confessions to very serious crimes was a big part of his, I think, his was appeal. Yeah. Um, he was a Jordan Peterson figure, but he was a Jordan Peterson figure who was not, like, sitting in his room, uh, you know, talking in a whiny voice, getting on the Daily Wire, that kind of thing. He mm. was actually doing the things that he was he was talking about or trying to teach you, and that was a big part of his selling point. 
Um, but like what? So that, 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 that's that, that, that's a really interesting claim. Like what? Let's be specific. What does Andrew Tate spend his time doing? Well, he spends his time like offering advice and driving around in cars. And like, what else do people see him doing? Like, what are the actual fa- activities that he is engaged in? He drives around in cars. He offers business seminars. You see him on videos where he's just, like kind of talking to camera mostly. Sometimes he's on a boat. Right. This is like the lifestyle of the extremely wealthy. It's like kind of the life, it's like a billionaire lifestyle, but it's a kind of a parody of a billionaire lifestyle, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, what are the business jobs that Andrew Tate exemplifies for people, or is it like a combination of that business acumen with the notable kickboxing career and the mixed martial arts career and that kind of thing? Like, what 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 actually is it that people admire about him? Well, and this is the thing as well is that there was a there was a kind of Guardian profile on him recently while he was you know because as he got kind of arrested, um, that was like you know a lot of his claims are just marketing. You know this idea that he had a chain of casinos in Romania and it turns out they were possibly some slot machine arcades somewhere. Yeah. You know not you know that kind of thing, kind of a very empty, a very empty kind of facade that got can be quickly quite disproven. But it almost like. Obviously, you know the the really horrible stuff he did. You know, I completely believe that he did. Um, but to the idea that he had this like empire that was drawing in, you know, fifty million a month or whatever it was, is ludicrous on the face of it. And yet, people still kind of went along with it. And even in the profile, they went along with it too and said, "Oh, he's the claimed to be the first trillionaire. Isn't this a an interesting hook?" Right. And a ridiculous. I think it's very like funny. I mean, like, so he was he was the, the question the claim about being a trillionaire is that. He went from being a multimillionaire, undoubtedly, definitely, definitely very rich. Um, I don't think the claim of him having fifty million a month is like so unreasonable, given that it's fifty dollars a month to sign up to his Harvard University. It's not ridiculous that he might get a million people doing that. Um, definitely, like a large number. Well, of them. they say it's like thirty thousand was the was the peak of his. Really, okay, so that's one hundred fifty thousand a month. Okay, yeah, that's not gonna that's not gonna translate. Yeah, which is loads of money. But I think what happened is basically he didn't realize there was a number between million and, and, and trillion. So he just claimed to be the first trillionaire. And then he looked up trillionaire and he was like, no one's a trillionaire. So I must be the world's first trillionaire. Just it kind of I don't know. It's 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 it, 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 it's kind of amazing. Um yeah, I think I think he's kind of admirable impartially because of those things. His business acumen, his his, his fighting background, but also because of his, as you were saying, like his, his, he's got that kind of Trumpian ability to say that he's doing a thing, tell you that he's getting away with it, and for that to be kind of amazing, like that to be the that to be the kind of the admirable thing about it is that he's getting away from it. He has the the, the seduction of impunity, and one thing that's particularly striking about the way in which his fan base seems to have turned in after his arrest and after him being uh, imprisoned in Romania is that lots of them have taken it in the classic conspiratorial mode as evidence that he was right all along, right? The fact that he has been arrested for sexual assault and, and all the crimes he's been arrested for, like the fact that he's been arrested for that is proof that he hasn't done it, <laughs> right? Is proof that he is actually um, immune from this kind of prosecution because that is the kind of thing that the, the you know, the matrix, which is the, the, the kind of the nebulous forces um, that Andrew Tate says are trying to bring him and indeed all other entrepreneurs down in the world, right? Because the Matrix says that about him, therefore it cannot be true. And so you get this kind of conspiratorial uh, realm where 
the absence of evidence is actually evidence that the thing is true. Um, they got they got him because he was too good at what yeah. he was doing. And, 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 and so I think we we kind of I don't think we're going to see another QAnon, right? We're not going to see like in, in part because the demographics of this are just so different, and the demographics of this are so meme like. He's not going to be this kind of Q-like figure that sits back and his teachings are kind of disseminated and elaborated on and become this huge cosmology. Um, it's partially because he's just too pithy a speaker and he makes very precise claims and he's identifiably a person, but also because the demographics mean that we're going to get like, you know, young people are just a bit more distractible. So I think he might be a kind of quite a passing fad, but nevertheless, we're in a moment of quite like intense uh uptake and I think quite like an intense danger partially because I don't really see anything particularly striking or impressive about Andrew Tate and therefore I can completely imagine a whole slew of other people adopting exactly the same collection of of things what was weird about Tony Robertson for example is that he was almost uniquely competent amongst the far right the far right has a big four lions problem right it has lots of very incompetent people no one could really follow on Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson is a tenured professor at a like a university with a, actually, you know, although he, Carl Jung is, a, is is wrong, like a deep knowledge of Carl Jung, a deep knowledge of the, the, you know, the symbology of the Bible and so on. No one else could do that grift again. Andrew Tate strikes me as a deeply unimpressive person who you could well get lots of like mini influencers who were trying to kind of replace him. And if he's out for long enough, it may well be that one of them will succeed. And they'll probably succeed along the direction of further radicalization. What does that radicalization look like for you? Almost certainly it looks like a a further call towards a certain kind of separatism. Um, so like the idea that instead of being in the world, talking to people, what you need to do as a young man is isolate yourself from everyone else and just follow me. I don't know what they'll then say to do after that, but I think that's generally the vector of this kind of radicalization is that you need to split yourself off from all the other influences on your life that you could um, receive and just listen to me. And I think that, that that's that's probably the, the next stage of radicalization after, after Andrew Tate, who gives the appearance of being quite like kind of gregarious, right? Um, someone who is much more cynically manipulating people into doing just what they say would definitely go down that kind of isolation path. And it's not unreasonable they would find lots of willing converted people because isolation is actually quite comforting in the short term horrible in the long term but comforting in the short term yeah and young men are very susceptible to it as well i'm going to use a quote from tate to kind of pivot into kind of wider discussions uh, about masculinity um he says life is war it's a war for the female you want it's a war for the car you want it's a war for the money you want it's a war for the status you want i presume masculine life is war now, my question is, is there the possibility of this kind of war that he is talking about in the modern world as we live in it today? There's definitely a possibility for a sort of kind, for, for an aesthetics of deep struggle, right? Um, I don't know about, I don't really use Instagram, but I don't know what your explore page is like, but my explore page is dominated by guys lifting very heavy objects Um Men who have always taken a lot of steroids, uh, just like lifting them up and put them down again. Uh, I do go to the gym, so you know, not a not a soy boy actually. But yeah, I I, I, um, I don't find this stuff particularly interesting. And yet there is like 
an overcoding of war, even in that particularly like non-racialized sphere. War is the aesthetic of that. Um, grimy, grayed out images of people with like enormous abs who stylize themselves as sort of like um, with, with quotes from ancient Greece, uh, quotes from ancient Rome, right? Like, you know, uh, this, this Socrates quote, uh, it is like a shame for a man to to not like see the true beauty of his body or something like this. I've forgotten what it is, but you, you, you've seen it. If, you, if you're a man, you've probably seen this quote like loads of times on Instagram. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? You know the quote I'm talking about is? Yes, of course I do. I also go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and so I think, yeah, that, that there, there, there's definitely a large amount of contemporary life that is stylizable as war that can have like, war as a kind of um, aesthetic filter applied to it. I don't know, what do you think? Do you think that, that like there are, there's scope for war in, uh, in the, 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 the modern world of the 14-year-old boy? you just got to do really radical reframing of what war actually is and what it represents and to evoke some kind of um, past idea of war that probably never even existed anyway. Like the knight in shining armour clashing with the knight in shining armour or the Viking ripped to the fuck, like cleaving a bear with an axe or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, war is modern war is particularly clinical yeah. and almost feminizing. Right. You know the way the way it actually functions. It's not a masculine act yeah. at all. It's a it's an act of pressing a button and some drone somewhere blows up a wedding yeah. or whatever. Like it's not it's not this kind of epic combat that people want it to be. It's actually a technical a technical kind of contest of logistics yes. ultimately, which is not the idea of war that they want at all. But then again, you know, it's this this old question about like the Bronze Age pervert thing. Like anything can be war, anything can be glorious as long as you make it so. Uh, and that's what essentially I think what, that's what this quote is getting to. It's like just find war in yourself, bro, yeah. and you can do it. I absolutely agree. We talked about this when we we were discussing the the episode. Uh, we're talking about the base, right? And like the base and Atom Waffen and these kinds of like very extreme neo-Nazi-ish groups in America deliberately recruited from the American military as, and there are reasons why you would do that, obviously, people in the military have skills you might need if you're going to like be a separatist organization uh, they can all obviously fire a gun they can do like a bunch of other things that are kind of useful but also, they are prone and I think we talked about that at the time they're prone to find the experience of war as you just laid it out, disappointing they imagined war would be this like naturalized form of domination. And as you exactly said, like it's this alienating thing where you have to just work out the logistics and then you draw fire from the insurgents and then you press a button and the Air Force bombs something, right? That's the experience of contemporary war for like a heavy militarized soldier. Um, so yeah, I think that, 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 that there's, there's going to be a need to be a gradient of stretching of like the metaphor of war. But I mean, yeah, we're not, uh, that's, that's easy to do if you are, uh, a fourteen-year-old boy, as I say, like you know, that is the kind of constituency we're mostly talking about. I don't. Know, do you agree with that? Actually, is that the constituency you're mostly talking about? Fourteen-year-old boys. I don't think so. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what constituency we're talking about. Right. Um, I I would say it's a little bit older than fourteen, but mind you, I'm not a fourteen-year-old boy and I don't know any, so it's really hard to tell. You know, we're both almost in our thirties. You're almost in your thirties, right? Uh, that, yeah, roughly. Roughly, me too. Roughly. Um, <laughs> and it says, You're thirty-five years old, Alex, <laughs> and don't you forget. 
And then, no, I mean, so it's, it's hard to know what, what, what young people are thinking today without it being mediated through some, some thing. I don't know. So one thing I did want to talk about is Andrew Tate's appeal to slightly older men than that. So not 14-year-olds, but like 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 21, up to about the mid-20s, right? Um, because it seems like, to me, that the appeal is different there, right? That is the period in which you are supposed to be Cohe- cohering yourself as an adult but it's also a period in which you are supposed to be having like an amazing time and like having like loads of friends and probably having quite a lot of sex at the same time right and so we have all these like competing notions of what it is that you're supposed to be doing in your early 20s and i think andrew tate sort of speaks to a fantasy of being able to resolve the contradictions between those different paths so he's incredibly rich but he's also has apparently although never kind of like, you know, clear how. And indeed, in this, you know, the, the, the charges that he brought against him, obviously, you know, possibly non-consensually, uh, uh, allegedly non-consensually, um, sex with lots of women. Right, so like there, there's a kind of a, a promise that Andrew Tate holds out, which is that you can resolve the contradictions and the tensions between becoming incredibly successful and the slightly asexual modes in which that has to happen, the kind of productivity freak. And on the other hand, becoming um, gregarious, uh, sexually attractive, and so on. And I think lots of men of that age find themselves in sort of consumptive spirals where they find themselves like addicted to playing video games, addicted to TikTok, addicted to porn, addicted to like, you know, kind of a certain like miserable mode of existence. And Andrew Tate offers a way out through this kind of imaginary splendor, driving fast cars and so on. And that's really why he's kind of attracted to those people. But he's also attractive to that age cohort in particular because probably those men, their experience of dating is pretty miserable. And their experience of like uh, sexuality is also pretty miserable. And yeah, there, there are lots of kind of complicated reasons for that. But I mean, do you agree that that's like generally the shift? So there's a kind of a, um, a younger audience that kind of gets off on the kind of the, the fantasy of war and domination and like petulance and being a little shit and like having the kind of justification for doing that and then there's like a kind of a um people in their mid-20s or earlier for whom andrew tate speaks to a certain disappointment a certain sense of flailing around a certain sense of you know uh not knowing what direction to take so yeah i agree with that and i wonder how his his performance of like the 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 winner of society the societal winner Oh, the next guy who comes along who's, who plays that role, whether his kind of portrayal of winning is going to be turned down to accommodate the degrading conditions of society. So instead <laughs> of the Bugatti, you have like being able to afford groceries on a weekly basis or, you know, going out to uh, Pizza Express once a week or, or something. Yeah, yeah. I feel like instead of getting... The cost you know, of living crisis. I, I presume yeah. it's going to get more and more outrageous. Maybe just to move on. We'll talk about crisis and masculinity more concretely because this has been uh, been the kind of dominating thing around Tate. The kind of general, more general discourse has been this crisis of of masculinity. Um, of course, like you said earlier, with with Tate specifically, he's speaking to a very specific subset of people, and his audience, despite being very popular on the internet and really, really popular on the internet, is still a very small sliver of society. Um. But what I suppose, what do you make of this kind of discourse about a crisis in masculinity? Is there one, or is it just a more general crisis of alienation? 
are we making too much of this? Um, I think there is a, there is a general, there's a civic crisis of masculinity, but it is specified. It is it's a kind of a gendered crisis, which doesn't mean that it's only a masculine crisis, but that it's experienced by men and women in different ways. So there's a, there's a general crisis of alienation, or a kind of contradiction. And then there's the experience in, in, in the mode of being a man and the experience in the mode of being a woman. Um, to kind of really mangle some Stuart Hall, uh, gender is the mode of, in which, gender is, gender is the modality in which the crisis of activity is lived, right? And the crisis is... What does that mean? Well, the crisis is this. So the crisis, and, and I'm, I'm cribbing this slightly from Daniel Bell, um, who is not a theorist I think about very often, but um, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he became a kind of a neoconservative, but he was uh, a trot before that. So one of these kind of people who who moves from the left to the right over the course of the, the late 20th century. Yeah, really, really genuinely a classic move. <laughs> um, great film about that, uh, which I can't remember the name of, but yeah, look it up. So, and he says there's a, there's a tension between like the productive individual and the consultative individual. And you're supposed to, on the one hand, be the kind of the uber productive worker in contemporary society. And at the same time, you're supposed to be a, a kind of a, an aesthete, a kind of a pleasurable enjoyer of things. And you can try and do both at the same time, the old kind of work hard, play hard mode. But the problem is that more and more, the kind of way in which people consume things is taking them over. Uh, and this is my claim. This is not Daniel Bell's claim. I think more and more the way people consume things is taking them over as people, dominating all their time, becoming uh, you know, sort of parasitic on their, their being or something. And at the same time, there's a, a work is becoming more and more pointless, more and more ridiculous, more and more like kind of surplus to the, to the demands of society. Um, and so you get... And also more and more taking up all your life, yeah, ti- the yeah, time of yeah, your yeah, life. Precisely. Yeah. And so you, you end up in this kind of like absurd uh, situation where you, where you have a collection of basically addictions that you need to fulfill. And on the other side, you have a bunch of um, job, job like you know, uh, tasks that you need to fulfill, and and this produces a kind of tension, which more broadly, I would say, the far right manages to resolve through the modality of, of race and thinking about like how you don't need to work because like actually you already have the thing that you most need, which is your your biological you know her- heredation, but also. Um, this is the this explains I think the appeal of things like trad wives and the kind of the retreat to the countryside and this kind of like idea that you could live in a little kind of barn where you wouldn't have any of these terrible modern um, desires uh, you wouldn't have a like a a, a a twitch addiction you wouldn't like watch TikTok uh, you wouldn't have to like you know feel yourself compelled to watch porn and so on um, and in particular I think what's happening there is that people. And, and the resentment that is born of this, and it is a strongly resentful position to find yourself in, is that particularly in the case of of like sexual addictions, like pornography and, and and Instagram and Twitch and so on, like all these kind of quasi-sexual activities, which are always adjacent to the ones that you're doing for work because they happen on the you know the same computer or like you know on the same devices or you know this kind of internet apparatus puts everything very close together. That what's particular about them is that because overwhelmingly young men don't identify with their own sexual desires. They don't think, oh, I have the sexual desire. <laughs> Instead, they think, oh, this sexual desire is being put into me by something outside of myself. It is, it is trying to trap me, to ensnare me, and so on. Hence why you get, you know, the kind of these, as we talked about in the book, all these kind of no-fap communities 
as kind of uh, feeders for the far right in these kind of bodybuilding communities. And the idea that you know, masturbation will you know, uh, make you kind of grow grow hair on the palms of your hands or whatever, right? The idea that there's a sort of a an effeminacy to sexual desire itself. And so, like, this is also, I think, why in lots of bodybuilding communities, you uh, there's a, there's a and you know Nick Fuentes, I think, was the other day. It was like there's a sense in which Nick Fuentes is is sort of so straight that he's actually a bit gay. Um, I don't know if you want to put any of this in. <laughs> like, he's, he's, a, he's, a zesty, he's a zesty straight, is what you're saying. He's a fruity straight. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't. I think that's possibly homophobic. But I think... I mean, I think Fuentes is fruity, but let's let's move on, I suppose. I, I think what I mean is that, like, he's so fixated on the homosexuality, on, like, the exclusion of women, that he, like, that he starts to de- deny that he has any sexual desire for women at all. And that, and that, and this produces this, this sense that all sexual desire is being put in you from outside. You're being tripped. You're being trapped. Sorry, you're, you're, you're being trapped. And that's how you get a notion of, like, the matrix in Andrew Tate's vocabulary that feels so compelling. Because people do feel themselves and are genuinely tricked into a kind of idiocy in a kind of a, like a unspooling that they find themselves in. And this is, I think, the condition of basically quite a lot of young men. It's sad. So the, <laughs> it's along sad. with along it is sad, yeah. It's really depressing actually. Sorry. Yeah, it is. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Rip. Tied up in the discourse about the crisis of masculinity is obviously, you know, what to do about it. And there is liberal takes and there has been like, you know, columns in the Guardian saying, you know, we need to teach men about respecting women in schools, boys respecting women in schools, this kind yeah. of thing. Um and there's also been discussion on the left as well about a left response to to the crisis of masculinity. Um, you know, some more strong, stronger than others, some kind of dismissing it as like a need for more feminism, you know, whatever that means. Do you, what, what, I mean, obviously it's, it, there's no one answer to solving this, a, a crisis that is so kind of widespread and so kind of fundamental to modern life. But what would you, what would you say is a kind of a, a, a good left response to the crisis of masculinity? I don't know what the left response is. If you think about like the people who we're talking to, like young boys, uh, who are being told often that they are that they live in a world that is dominated by men, and at the same time, the immediate world they understand, which is the world of the classroom and the world of the playground and the world of their like friendship group outside of school, in all those spheres, it's not actually obvious that men dominate them. Um, women or uh, girls, rather, mostly do better at school than men now. Um, they win more academic prizes. You know, they're like they're 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 kind of you're performing, but outperforming their male their male peers, right? It's not obvious, I don't think, to young men that they do dominate anything. Uh, it's obvious that to them that they have a certain like kind of, and, and so all they have is this kind of brutality. All they have is this kind of like, you know, assertion because actually being bested by the girls around them. Uh, on a fiscal basis, right? So I, I mean, I don't know what it what it's like to give an account of uh, gender hegemony to a fourteen year old boy. What do you reckon? I agree. I mean, I don't think you can like convince boys to not like Andrew Tate by making them read Bell Hooks. I don't think that's silly. But it, I think it also goes back to the fact that you know we we talk about kind of the atomization of society and the re- restitching of kind of social structures through the yeah. internet. Like this is what happening. This is what happening to teenage boys, and uh, I suppose a left response. It's I suppose it's more a community response. Would be 
to try and restitch those funds in ways that are like useful to their development. And I don't mean that in a kind of like patronizing, you need to get better to, you need to grow up some kind of way. I mean, like your general development as human beings and whether that's, you know, kind of very fundamental things like, you know, sports clubs or after school clubs or interest group things, you know, like I think all of that is like incredibly important and has what has been shredded over the last kind of since, you know, the 2000s since the financial crisis um is has, has completely gone away uh, and these things atrophy and therefore the kind of relationship that kind of not just boys and girls have is like you know the there was a there was a study that came out in yuga recently that about 50 uh one fifth 20 percent of young people spend their hours watching youtube essentially all the time like the answer was every moment of the day was like 20% or something. And I feel like that is the fundamental problem. I think, I think, I think, I think it's a bit too much content. Concentration. I don't know. Like it, it, it's a bit, what if screen's a bit bad. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced about that too, to be honest. A little bit. Yeah. But like it is bad. I mean, okay. So I think. Get out there kids, get out there, play some football. Yeah. Like having, having more complicated experiences in general, I think would be a good idea for almost everyone. Like having like experiences that are more rich, more like weird, more more uncertain, uh, less befitting of like certain kind of norms. But we can exaggerate this like hugely, right? On the one hand, there are these kind of extremely aggressive, uh, misogynistic norms like Andrew Tate propagates. On the other hand, Gen Z people younger than us are like uh, very likely to identify as queer, like very likely to um, have like a non kind of binary uh, gender identity, right? These are not uh, a cohort as a such, as a whole, who are sort of like being, you know, kind of um, red-pilled. They're having like very complicated reactions to a, to a rapidly changing media, media, media atmosphere. And, you know, uh, I think the more complexity, the better, of course. I always think that. But I also think that um, we shouldn't despair of... Uh, of the kind of experiences that young people are having, or imagine that content as such is sort of bad for them. I agree with that. That is fair. Okay, we're coming to the end of our recording, allotted recording time. Um, do you want to, like, what are you doing right now? I haven't seen you in ages. Do you want to shout anything out? Like, uh, I'm bearing a book proposal for um, a third book. Uh, it's going to be about uh, collapsology. It's going to be about critical theory of collapsology. Um, working title is, if this is the end of the world, then what? Or what to do if the world is ending, or um, what to do if it's the end of the world. I haven't quite got one. Oh, you can do better than this. I can do, I can do so much better than this. Those are all provisional titles. Those are the questions that the book is asking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's becoming very intricate and very exciting, and I'm I'm looking forward to to spending more time on that. Cool. Uh, send me a draft when you got it ready. I'll critique it. <laughs> we'll do. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. 
Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to whatsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.